I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of I-94. Coming to you live, today is March 10th, it's Daylight Savings Time, we're a little groggy. My name is Jamie Trecker, as always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And today we are joined by the author of Rag, a new book out from Farrow, Strauss, and Giroux, that's a pretty good house, Maurice Meyer. Thanks for making it up from Hyde Park to see us, Maurice. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So we, this is a book of short stories uh, that has come out in a little paperback. Is there a hardback? coming out of this or is it a paper original no F- fsg originals just does paperbacks paperbacks are good i like them because you can stick them in your back pocket and stuff like that i did that yesterday did you this book. <laughs> so i i think all of us uh i don't think I'm, st- I'm talking out of school by saying all of us actually really enjoyed this book yeah uh it's a collection of short stories about and again i don't want to um dumb it down for folks but i reading this book i felt it was a collection of stories about marginal people people on uh kind of the fringes of our society, as well as people who had been um, done great damage to uh, by exterior forces. Yeah, damaged was what I would. Yeah. And a lot of the materials compelling. Uh, We're going to hear a couple selections from it later on. As always, our readings are done by Shanna Van Volt today. It's uh, Antiloper, which is uh, Jamie Branch uh, with the guys from Helado Negro. I also, of course, want to remind you that sometimes, unfortunately, due to FCC rules, there are words we cannot say on the air. Uh, Ms. Meyer's book has some of those words. We don't censor things, but the FCC makes us so. For some unexpurgated uh, takes on this book, uh, you might want to just pick the book up yourself. Maurice, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about why you gravitated toward this subject matter in the first place. You mean why I'm writing about these type of people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. It's funny, when people ask you questions about your book, you, I've answered this question so many times. Right. <laughs> and it's always the same answer. So to me, it sounds boring, but I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin. And I don't know what loneliness is. Never experienced it. And I think most of the people that I know, if I ask them what, it, what is their most common experience of being in the world, people will say that they, they feel lonely. They feel disconnected from each other. Or... They're constantly engaged in a search for their soulmate or someone to understand them, et cetera, et cetera. And as a twin, I don't know what it feels like to be engaged in that kind of search. And I think as a writer, I'm interested in things that are scary, that scare me. And loneliness scares me the most out of anything that I can imagine. Hmm. And I think a lot of violence comes out of loneliness. We talk about the, how disconnected we are as a society you now a lot on the show, just with you know, social media, the technology and things like that, which are supposed to bring people together, but it really... But it doesn't. It doesn't, you yeah. know, and even just having you on the show today, you know, a lot of the times we have people on the phone, it's not the same, you know, like we got to talk before the show, probably chat a bit after the show, and it's just, uh, it's a different experience being one-on-one with a person as opposed to even on the phone, and not that I don't enjoy that as well, but it's, I, we always... Uh, we kind of have like a rule if you're on the show in Chicago, we want them on to come in so we can interact and, and um, you know, just and doing shows at Pilsen Community Books, I become friends with Aaron and Mary, you know, and it's just like it's a we're all in this together. It's a um, a literary scene, you know, and not it doesn't always interla- overlap or interact. And I think it's important um, for the very reason you're talking about, because it is a lonely world for a lot of people. That that really surprises me that you say that that you don't know loneliness because you 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 fooled me in the <laughs> stories you wrote, especially the one called the shut in. Yeah, and you were talking about the, liking things that scare you. That was uh, creepy. That's the last story that I wrote. I haven't written a story in two years. Wow. Um, Why and is that? that? W- well, because I think when I f- finished this collection and I finished that story, I felt like I had come to the end of what I had to say in this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked on, I've written four books since then, but uh, they're all longer right. projects in different forms. And I felt like with the shut-in, I had sort of reached the end of 
this kind of exploration about loneliness from this angle. And it was so hard for me to write that story, and it was so, like, upsetting. <laughs> I still cry when I read it when I get to the end of it. There's, there's, a, there's a horror movie, I think, of where someone's wearing a mask, and they're just waving silently. I can't think of Is what it. it? Uh, no, but there's this there's a scene in that story where there's a lot of them. It's about a, a neighbor of the narrator who never leaves their house, and the narrator calls the shut-in it you know, because she doesn't know yeah. if it's a man or woman or or what. And there's finally this interaction with the shut-in. The only way that they can do it is wearing a pig mask, and the the shut-in lets the narrator into the, to their home, and they just have this weird creepy silent interaction both wearing pig masks and it, I, I haven't i hadn't read anything like that did you ever see motel hell yeah yeah that's <laughs> that's probably where it is yeah the pig mask that's that, where it's yeah, from yeah i watch a lot of horror movies and i do too the <laughs> pig mask i've always been like where did this pig mask come from but i have the same image of somebody that's where it's from it's yeah. an important movie for me growing up i thought it came from batman because there's a leading Batman mm-hmm. villain, Professor Pig, who always wears oh, the pig I don't mask. Know that one. No, Jamie's yeah. a comic. I don't know I'm a comic about nerd. Batman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's the Dark Knight detective. He's a mask, and he's got a little kid that runs around with him. Motel Hills, more sure, my. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question. Um, so I heard um, that one of your publishers has some kind of morality clause. Was that you had to was that not you I, no <laughs> I mean if they do is that a thing I yes, well, there's a new thing and that I actually class. read about it and I thought I thought was it FSG that has it I thought well I thought Aaron Marion told me it was Maurice but I might be having it mixed up but you basically it's like it's a it's a form that mm-hmm. says like that you will be a moral person outside of your writing and you have to sign it and it was in I read about it in the New York Times too. Yeah, it was about a teen lit book, wasn't yeah. it? Knopf maybe? Yeah. Okay. I thought I'm that you sure. that you'll be a more what does that mean? It means like that but you won't you won't like don't advertise well, poorly do for the company. You won't <laughs> be racist or sexist or violent or yeah. you know, it's censorship I think they were concerned the story came up because somebody um I think said some inappropriate things on social media. Okay. I yeah. believe that's what it was. No, really? I know. You know, that never happens. Well, now um, the literary controversies, like with the, the Nobel Prize and uh, Diaz and all that stuff, you know, I think it's been right. like at the forefront. And for some reason, uh, I thought it was you. I apologize. Oh, yeah, and the Nobel stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, anyway, back to Motel Hell. <laughs> I got to. Sorry about that. I wanted to, I wanted to ask about the, the narrators. There's a really wide range of narrators in the stories. Um, male, female, young, old, non-human, inanimate. <laughs> There's a dog, a rag. Dog, yeah, the dog. <laughs> yeah. How how did is it like you challenge yourself? You pick something and you, you just say I'm going to go for it, or does it just come to you? Yeah, it just it just comes. You just sit down and somebody starts talking, and then you figure out who it is. And I mean, what would mysterious. you? Would you call these stories horror? I mean, were you trying to write in the horror genre, or was that just something that, because of your own interest and, and love of horror films, seeped into these particular stories? I was surprised when uh, the galley came out and it was the blurbs mentioned horror. I was like, "What? That's not what I'm doing." <laughs> but I think there are parts of living in a capitalist, patriarchy, liberal society that. It's horrific. Like daily life is horrific for a lot of people, and there are horrific aspects to it. So maybe it's not surprising that it falls under that category. But I, I didn't set out, um, you know, to to write towards a genre. Although I did feel scared when I was writing the stories, and I I felt a lot of dread every time I sat down to work. Was it hard to stay writing while you feel it? I mean, it's not so much that I don't have a hard time writing the stories, but I I have a I, I worry about what's going to happen to the people because <laughs> I care about them. And then uh, you, you start typing and you're like, oh, if you know something bad's going to happen. So do you – that's an you interesting don't want them question. To. Mm-hmm. Do you know what's going to happen at the end of the story or are you writing it and you find out as you go along? And the reason I ask this question is we've talked to a number of authors and some of the authors, including my mom, 
uh, who we've had on the show a couple of times, says she doesn't know what's going to happen. And, and she says that's because she's – and I'm quoting her. That she says she's because she's a stupid writer. She says she gets <laughs> – if, if she – she says if she was a smart writer, she would have plotted everything out and had it all on note cards. Uh, but it would bore her to right. know what the ending yeah, is. she wouldn't want to write. You know, yeah. And again, I, mom is going to be listening to this show. So I am quoting her and I, Hi, can, I can clip out that part where she said that. So uh, it's not an insult to my beloved mother. But uh, do you know where um, – do you know where you're going with this stuff? Or are you sitting down and kind of letting things play out in your head in the unconscious and it, it just is going? You, I usually, I know, I start with the end or I start with the image and I figure out later that that's the end. Okay. But I don't know what comes before it. Okay. So maybe it's just working backwards. Um, I mean, they're all different. But I would say 70% of the time, I'll get to the end pretty quickly. Maybe I'll start with a scene or idea or a feeling and then pretty quickly i'll get the last paragraph Mm -hmm. but then i don't know what happened why we're there or um but for the shut-in i didn't know what was going to happen at the end i started from the beginning from this person looking out the window into someone else's house and when i got to the end i disliked the end so much it was so painful to write it and i i just didn't want it to happen (laughs) um that i tried to write a different ending it's the only time i've tried to do that Tried to write my way out of a story. And did it and didn't work. It did not work. No. <laughs> um, we have some selections, as I mentioned earlier. Why don't we actually play something uh, that you wrote so you can hear kind of what we're talking about. This is a selection, I think, from the first uh, story oh, in this good. collection. Her Blood. Uh, Her Blood. And again, I have a lot of questions about this one. Well, you'll have some questions <laughs> after we hear this. And again, once again, we thanks to uh, Shannon Van Volt International <laughs> Anthem Recording Company and uh, Jamie Branch. We'll be back in about four minutes. Please listen to the selection from Maurice Meyer. I spent an hour in the bathroom with a bucket of bleach and paper towels and a pair of yellow gloves with crud in the fingertips. I wiped the porcelain over and over with one hand while I breathed into my elbow. There was something the size of a stake in the toilet, sunk in the red water, organ-like. It didn't look like a baby, but maybe there was a piece of baby inside of it. An eye, a finger, a face. And I wondered if there was something I should do with it, but I couldn't think of anything. I flushed, coughing. The thing squeezed down the pipe and little bits of whatever it was gurgled back up into the pit of the bowl so that I had to stand there and flush until the water was clear. She'd used up the toilet paper, stuffed long red ropes of it into the trash. There were meat-colored streaks all over the floor where she'd walked in her own blood. And the graffiti on the walls that Jason loved. That's what she had to look at while it happened. The overhead light was dim and the dark blue walls were almost black and I knew I wasn't seeing it all, getting it all, the mess she'd made, but I couldn't stand it anymore, so I left. I took the trash out to the dumpsters and ate cold pepperoni and drank a cup of Mountain Dew. The phone rang. Hi, she said. Hi, it's you? I spit the pepperoni into a napkin. Yes, how? I'm sorry, she said. I know, there was a mess. I would have cleaned it, I would have... It's fine, I interrupted. I could still feel the pepperoni in my mouth, slippery, rancid. Are you okay? Oh, yes, she said. Yes. That's good, I said. Thank you, uh, you know, for calling the ambulance, for staying with me. It's fine. There was a long pause. When she spoke again, her voice was whispery but loud at the same time, like she had her mouth pressed up against the receiver. Did you see it? She asked. See what? When you were cleaning it up, she said. Did you see anything? I thought of the black shape in the water, its gleaming sides. Not really, I said. I did she said, sniffling. I touched it, even. I thought it would be, you know, that you could see what it looked like, but it wasn't a baby. It was something else. No one really told me what it was. Her voice broke off, a little breath. And you... you just flushed it, right? She said. Yeah, I, I mean, you left it there. I... She giggled. No, I mean, of course, it's okay. That's great. You were really great, she said. And she stayed on the line for a moment, and so did I, listening to her. 
listening to her listening to me, and then she made a noise like a part of a laugh or a sob, and then she hung up. I walked home in the rain, slowly getting soaked up to my ankles in filthy water. It was a Monday night and everything was closed. I wondered if they'd given her new clothes to wear at the hospital or if someone brought her something to change into. I, I didn't know how it all worked or who would clean her, how she would clean herself. There'd been a trail of blood from the bathroom to the counter of the booth to the door, blood on the medic's blue suits as they carried her out. I imagined having what she had, a place in my body that could splash an entire room with my insides and then let me walk away. I got an erection, though I didn't mean to. I pushed my hands into the front pocket of my hoodie and rubbed them against my crotch, grimacing, not feeling good at all. When I got to my apartment, my roommates were already in bed and I fell on the couch in my wet clothes and went to sleep. And you are with I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. That was a selection from uh, Her Blood by Maurice Meyer. Her new collection is Rag Out, now from FSG. So I... Her blood was one of the couple stories that I uh, really evaluated. And um, first of all, the opening line, excuse me, she said, help, I need, can you help me? And then you go into a description, um, blood pasting her white jeans to her thighs. She was hunched almost double, arms wrapped around her stomach. And then though the limp hair lashing her face, she smiled around a crop of buck teeth, a strand of saliva looped to the floor. Sorry, she said, wiping her mouth on her wrist. I'm sorry. That was such a, uh, that paragraph just yanks you into the story. And I have this, um, there's just certain things that you read in books that you never forget. Um, we talk about it on the show sometimes. And Blood Meridian. Yeah, Blood Meridian, the baby tree, Deliverance, the squeal piggy scene. There's just these like horrific things that you just um, never forget. And um, for me, and the story was when, um, the young man goes into the bathroom to clean up and and this you'll know early in the story that this young woman had a miscarriage and there was something in the there was something the size of a steak in the toilet and uh sunk in the red water organ like it didn't look like a baby but maybe there's a baby a piece of a baby inside it as you see i have that highlighted because i was like and that was one of those um i'll never forget that like i'll never forget that imagery um uh, probably as long as I live from reading that. Um, and it's one of those. Uh, Is that a good or a bad thing? <laughs> that, uh, well, it's, I think it's a powerful thing. I think when words are that powerful, when you, when you can describe something in that fashion, and, and we were talking a little bit about this on the break, there's a, um, in one of the other stories, you talk about peeling back the skin of fried chicken and there was black veins under there. And, and that really stuck with me too. And I, I, I just, I'm, I'm always amazed by, how certain descriptions or the power of words can be unforgettable. And I think you do a good job of that and um, a great job actually. And um, does this kind of thing, you know, these descriptions or, or I guess that's the best word for it, right? Um, um, do they come to you naturally or, I mean, do you, is this like, let's just use the steak uh, analogy. Yeah. Did you just come up with that on the fly, or is that something that you thought about? I'm just, and I'm just curious because I, um, it's not talked about a lot, you mm-hmm. know, like descriptions and, and fiction, and that one really, uh, really stuck with. Yeah, me. we always point that out. Yeah, on every yeah. show, Laura Adam chick. There were some descriptors in in her book that were really great, and in, in, in all your stories, that you just get a clear image. Yeah, it's like. I could see that, you know, and I, it's yeah. like, I, I know what that is. I know what it looks yeah. like. Even our reader mentioned that the, with one of the readings uh, that she did about the in uh, the dogs with uh, missing teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, a toothless animal is a dead one. She, she mentioned that as well. I think all of us were kind of struck by that. Um, is that something that, that you've had to work on hard or is this something that comes naturally to you? Um, yeah, definitely. That's one of the main things I think about is how to make a story visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I edit other writers, I'm most often struck by how their work resists visualization because the word, the descriptions are not precise enough. And because I watch so much film, I'm very influenced by film, I think that uh, maybe you've noticed that in the, 
the stories, there's not that much backstory. People, you don't really know where these people came from or what their families are like or even what they do for a living sometimes. And I think um, some schools of writing, the Chekhovian school of writing, there's a sense that everything has to be psychologically accurate. And can, can you explain what that is real quick? I don't, I don't know what that is. Just... Um, or where does it come from? The Chekhov? Like, like Chekhov, I think. Oh, you Chekhov. Know. Chekhov. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like that people think of. I thought not, you said the guy, not, the, not the guy on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Russian writer, Mike. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I thought you said Jacobian, like the. Oh, Jacobian. Yeah, like the like communist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Maybe something from there too. Sounds like Mike, and I need hearing aids. Yeah. yeah. But in my MFA program, for example, even though it was a low residency program, they had a large, wide variety of writers who taught there. There was still this sense that everyone was supposed to write like Alison Monroe, William Trevor, Chekhov. That psychological realism was what made something good. Mm-hmm. And I was always criticized for not having enough backstory in my work, and people felt like that made made it impossible to understand what was happening in the text. And I thought that if I could just show a gesture, that the gesture itself had all the information that you need about 100% a motivation. Especially in a short story. I, you right. Know, I mean, in a novel, right to it. yeah. But really, I think we're visual creatures. We watch each other, and that's how we learn about each other most of the time. Um, you don't need to get in someone's head in this long stream of consciousness thing about... Whatever. Yeah, how the, the, you know, the tail end of every action or thought. Really, it's just... If you just show the right thing at the right moment, that image in your head gives you the atmosphere. It's just like when you well, watch a it. good example is from is the reading we just heard when the kid gets an erection it, when you're not expecting it, you know. And it makes and you feel, feel like, bad. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of the stories in here have that yeah. weird yeah. feeling. There's that a bunch tension. of uncomfortable tension and, and moments in these stories. In fact, I would say most of the book is about those moments. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting you bring up the 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 idea that a story always has to have a complete backstory because I think that's a very constructed thing I've noticed from MFA programs. It's a very modern thing, and I, I well look at Carver. I mean, you never knew the backstory uh, of anybody. Well, that's you know I was going to actually just go to to Ray because um, you know I went to Syracuse and uh, mm. know all these guys, uh, the late Ray Carver and stuff. Uh, but that is something that I think is. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk about this because I know this is something that interests you. The commercialization of of getting a, a master's degree, for example, in writing is a new thing. And it is a very capitalist thing. This this idea that you uh, can be made into a writer if you pay enough and you have enough people behind you. And I wondered if some of the stuff that is being taught is a response to that because – Frankly, it's actually difficult to teach people to be a writer. You're, you either know what you're doing and, and can get better at it because you're working at it, or you can't. And I, so I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit because it seems um, I'm getting the sense you have some cynicism about the MFA program you were in. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Which is not to say, I mean, I think everyone else that I went to school with had a wonderful experience at this particular program. Part of it was just me <laughs> not fitting with, uh, I didn't want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And that was a problem. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a problem at all. I think it's, I think it's probably. I would have never guessed that this book came out of an MFA okay. program because usually you can tell them, I'm not kidding. We'll be like, I'll like email or text J- Jamie or Mike and be like, yeah, MFA program, you know. Yeah. And I would, I actually was going to ask you if you were in an MFA because I didn't think you were. Well, I, I mean, I had people tell me there that my work, you know, these stories aren't real stories. They're actually not stories. Yeah. Well, what, so what made a story a story for them? I, I, I still have to figure that out. I mean, I think a lot of it is just this sort of psychological realism. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, the subject matter maybe wasn't... It wasn't about a, it wasn't about a professor falling in love with one of his students. Well, uh, yes, and and <laughs> or I think an another trying thing to is, make it in Brooklyn. Yeah, is that people told me you have you know there's that trope it's you know so tiresome to even repeat that you have to write what you know and I'm not interested in doing that. Right, I'm interested in the opposite. I don't write to reflect my life or my own experiences thank because God. I live my <laughs> life right yeah. and it I you know and it's no, I'm fascinating. Saying, thank God this isn't what you've been through. <laughs> 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 but when people ask me is this you know where do you get your ideas people always assume that it's about you and it's like how could all of this 
you know, how it would that would be terrible. If all that stuff <laughs> so happened mean. to one person, or even yeah. one of these things, that would yeah. be really <laughs> sad. It'd be really sad. So you, you didn't work at murdering dogs in a uh, no. Okay. Um, maybe maybe it's because it's not oriented like problem action resolution. It, right. That's it, but it, that's part of it. Is, okay. And yeah. I think the lack of resolution is a big problem for a lot of people. That there's no growth. That people don't change. They don't learn from what they've gone through. See, what I liked about it is it makes me excited for what you're going to write next. Like when I was done with these short stories, I was like, oh man, I, I wonder if she's going to write something longer. There were a couple stories. The, the one called the Lover was one of them. Where yeah, you don't know what the background of the characters are. You just get these little sketches, but you, you know enough about who they are that they seem real and uh, what they're doing affects you. And I, I wanted to know more about the girl in that story and you know what kind of adventure she's going to go on. I wondered if you were going to write something longer. Are any of the characters in these stories moving beyond these pages? No. Usually what is mm-hmm. on the page is that's all I know about them. And okay. then they go away. Well it's assuming the reader's dumb too, like if you can't figure out you don't you know, not everyone needs a backstory and like one of the things about your stories too is you you, you have to kinda come up with you have to use your imagination a little bit, you know what I mean? Like I have a really good idea what the pizza guy looks like. Um, well, I mean, I thought that the signifier of the woman wearing white jeans was an instant signifier for telling you about the class of the person, right. where you are in America, what kind of situation she's in. That that was a dead-on detail to me that I, I instantly knew what this person was and where she was going. I, I knew that right away. So I, I think to your point, I never felt that I was – I never felt like I picked – like a, 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 this is a, a hoary example, but I always use the example of X-Men comic books, which are choked with so much backstory and soap opera that you can pick one up and have no idea what's going on anytime you pick it up. And that is a classic example of – Everything has to be psychological. Every character has to grow. And I find it just, I can't read the, the books. And they're the most popular comic books in America. I can't read them yeah. at all. I, I came into these stories and I, I never felt, I didn't know what was going on or where I was. I didn't feel disoriented. Um, well, you have to use your imagination when you read. Right. So, I, mean, I mean, that's, that's part that's, of the yeah. process. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you don't need everything handed to you on, in a basket. Yes. I did want to clarify when I was saying, I hope these weren't about you. I, I didn't mean your personal <laughs> life now. I meant the actual stories. Right. I, I yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, there was a, uh, you know, we got to actually take, you know, we're, we're, this is flying by. Oh, okay. And, and we're actually at our break. I hate to do this, but, um, we've got to take a quick break. We're going to come out. Um, you know what, why don't we come out and we'll hear uh, another segment. Uh, why don't we hear a segment from Alice? Alice? Yeah. Let's hear a segment from Alice when we come out. So we're going to, uh, thank the folks that make the station possible. And there's a preview of a brand new show coming up. It's going to come up right what? now. So pay attention kids. And we'll be back in a couple minutes. Coming soon to Lumpin' Radio. The Chicago Reader Radio Hour. Don't change that dial. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. I came back to the main house. Fish was now off the menu, yogurt, cheese, and milk followed suit. The refrigerator was nearly free of food, filled instead with a cool violet light. The butcher was ordering meat from a small organic farm outside our suburb, and it came in a crate and cost a fortune. Alice grew and grew. Her skin was very clear and her teeth were perfect. She smelled wonderful. We were careful not to let Wendy see us when Alice sat in my lap. Wendy didn't know what was pure and what wasn't. We went along with her way of doing things, but for our own reasons. Wendy appeared on a workout video for vegans, and when I saw my wife's sweatless face looking into the camera with such rigid determination, I laughed. At dinner, I ate my spoonful of rice, and when I caught Alice's eyes, she smiled, her cheeks full of meat. I spent more and more time parked outside the school. I didn't bother with Wendy's lunches. I put them straight in the trash. Those burgers had cured me. I was never hungry anymore. I slipped in and out of sleep while I waited for Alice. Summer was coming, such blue skies. And Alice through the window, pulling something from her pencil box and eating it. Something raw. Liver? Chicken? She chewed and wrote in her notebook, swallowed and raised her hand to answer a question. I put my cheek on the passenger seat and fell asleep again. That evening, when Wendy did the dishes, I took Alice on my lap and felt how much heavier she had become since the day before. I was speechless. How did she do it? My knees trembled. She giggled. I don't know what's wrong with her. 
Wendy said that night, looking at herself in the bathroom mirror. There's no fat gene in my family. Hmm, I said. You don't seem concerned. I think she's fine, I said. You always think that, she said darkly, snapping a piece of floss from its box. I shrugged and stood on the scale, double digits. I smiled. What, she said. I shrugged, blocking the number with my foot. Nothing, I said. I dreamt about living on pills, a glass of protein powder. I woke up choking, spitting blood on the pillow, the blood making the shapes of everything I'd ever craved. French fries, apple pies, barbecue. I beheld them with delight, with no trace of hunger, my stomach a vat of calm, happy acid. Wendy's gold head right next to mine, still asleep. I took the pillow, held it above her face, but didn't press it down. I drove to Alice's school that afternoon, even though it was a Saturday. Wendy was with Alice at the doctor's office, testing her blood for the third time that month. I closed my mouth around the stale air of the car. What would be floating there? Pieces of skin, particles of plastic, flakes of leather from the tan seats, all the dust of this particular moment. I opened my eyes. There in the dark window of the classroom, I saw Alice, standing with her pencil box in one hand, waving with the other. I waved back. At dinner, I pushed my food away, silverware untouched, the minute scoop of rice and kale pristine on the plate. Wendy shook with rage. How dare I eat less than her, she was thinking. How dare it be so easy for me to refuse what she still needed. She told me I was ill, that Alice was ill, that she, Wendy, was trying her best to keep the family healthy, but we never helped her. She stood at the head of the table, pointing her fork at my face. I could see a lot of veins beneath the skin of her arms, pulsing a livid blue. Hate, I knew, was keeping her alive. Her hate was in the food, and that's why I didn't eat it. But I'd kissed the meat that morning. I kissed it every morning. I turned Wendy's hate into love. You're a sick bastard, Wendy said. I turned my face towards the smell of cooling beef. Alice was sitting very still, her knife frozen above her plate, watching us. There just wasn't enough for everyone. I don't know why. I took my daughter's hand. Honey, I said, finish your food. <clears throat> and welcome back, everybody. You are listening to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. We are talking today to the author, Maurice Meyer. Her collection of stories, not a new collection, and we'll get to that in a second, is called Rag. It's out now from Farrah Strauss and Giraud. That was a selection from Alice. Um, that... Uh, and we've been talking about this on the show uh, for most of the top of the hour about how these are deeply um, affecting and disturbing stories in a number of ways. That story in particular, which I think mixed up, um, well, uh, eating disorders, um, uh, child molestation, I, I think was read in there, inferred in there in some ways. No, it's not. You don't think so? No. I, I, I tended it, to think that Alice was... It's on the line, was, but I thought Alice was being pretty abused in that story and was was a tool between the two characters. And there was obviously sexual attraction between the father and the, and the daughter as well. Because that's explicit in, in one of the things that happens. Ooh, I, I think you can read that scene. <clears throat> yeah, my editor certainly was like, do you mean it to come across this way? And and I didn't. Okay. But it it's the valid interpretation of the story. I really I think that the dad is he's doing his best. He's well, I think he's doing his best. <laughs> as well. Yeah, no. I, and actually, having said that, I was going to get to that. That the person in the story who is also is the villain is is the mother in a weird way. The mother way. is mm-hmm. the villain. Yes, and and I think that's very clear. Um, but it was a very affecting story because I thought it was. It reminded me actually we were talking during the break about um, a couple Korean short stories, and there's another uh, Korean novel about a woman who uh, refuses to eat. And it's a kind of a food horror story that came out last year. Is that the vegetarian? vegetarian? Yeah, it was the vegetarian. I love that book. And it's, a, and it's that, so good. This story reminded me very much of the vegetarian. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because it went, uh, it took kind of horror to a different place. And that, that was what resonated so much with me with this story. So I wondered if you could just talk briefly about this particular story, which I personally thought was the standout in the volume, um, and where that kind of came from, in a sense, which is a a dreadful question to ask a writer right now. Maurice, I wanted, before you answer the question, I did want to just interject. Maurice and I were talking at the break, and when we say horror, I think this is the horror of everyday life. Um, It's not like you're 
uh, traditional genre horror. It's more Not slasher. Right? Yeah. It's, well, yeah. It's it's uh, but, it's horrific reality. You know, I think that would be the yeah descriptor. But I mean, definitely, it's horrific and it falls under horror. But mm. I just want to make that clear. It, that it's not like Jordan Peele's Get Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not The Shining or you know. Yes. It's, yes. Right. It's, yeah, yeah. it's people living their lives and but in traumatic circumstances. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. could you could you talk a little bit about about this that particular story? Yeah, it started just with that image of the dinner table and I just had a a vision of a man sitting there and looking at a plate of food that was entirely inadequate Uh (laughs) Um, and then it just went from there uh, thinking about what we put in our bodies and how we think of food as having values that we're consuming and the whole health obsession of, you know, your body is a temple and you have to eat the perfect thing so that you'll be a perfect person. It's co- like, why is food so complicated for us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as someone who's mostly vegan, of course, I have complicated feelings about food as well. But the, the notion of purity, which is something that yeah, I struggle with all the time, I would I would prefer someone tell me how to be a pure person and I could just check off the boxes and yeah. it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the story is also about parenthood and, you know, I don't write very much in my life, but maybe being a parent, like my feelings about raising a child are somehow in there of how the father's eating less, right? He's, he's as his daughter's eating more and he feels like that's his job is to make room for her. But at the end, he's talking about how there's not enough room for everybody. And I think in a nuclear family that we often feel that way because nuclear families, that organization of humans is problematic. I think it's not, we think it's normal to to have parents and children living together and it's very isolated and the parents have absolute dominion over the young people and, that the pressures of being a parent in that situation where you're you're responsible for everything and the community doesn't really have a chance to to help in any way um, makes gives you that feeling of a lack of abundance that there's not enough for everyone so either the child becomes the most important part of the family or the parent one of the other parents are and the, and the power dynamic that goes on there. Well, it was so the exchange between food, food and parenting and power, I think, is what that I was trying to sort out in that story. Well, even with the control of the money, you know, the, yes, they found the a ten dollar bill that was unbudgeted <laughs> in the gutter and <laughs> went to Wendy's and picked out on burgers. You know, mm-hmm. that was that was affecting for me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you have the perfect family? How do you raise the perfect child? But then, you know, we don't know how. <laughs> Yeah, and in the the, the mm. power of righteousness, it was like the it was mm-hmm. the battle for being righteous that the father wasn't really fighting, but the mother was. Right, and he, but he had no choice because he was in the marriage, and that that just reminded me of the cultural climate today. This kind of battle for righteousness, um, mm. and I guess it wasn't deliberate, but uh, that that's what stuck out to me in that story. I think what the part Jamie was talking about too is when the guy is. Um, masturbating in the car at the Alice's yeah. school. I think that's probably, is that where you got the idea? Yeah, yeah. That it's sexual. Yeah. But really, he's he's actually giving up his sexuality there, okay. right? Because he says it's like the last of that liquid, I think is how I put it. Um, oh, yeah, the last of the liquid. So it's just, it's kind of a mechanical, it's a mechanical function, yeah. right? His body's just getting rid of. But I opened my eyes there in the dark window of the classroom. I saw Alice immediately after, and I think that's why. Right, and she's not really there because yeah. she's not at school. Um, but but I think it's that sense of Listen. letting go of the, the self, and then the daughter appears. But it, I don't I don't read it as yeah. him wanting to right. be intimate with her. In that well, way. that's a you know that's a, one of the things about fiction too. Like like any work of art everybody can interpret it even different than the writer which yeah, is cool yeah and my you know? editor had she said i don't know if you want that in there because it, it it twists the story in a way that i'm not sure you want but i i want it i i'm interested in that line i think it's almost impossible to write about men and children and have any reference to the body and it not be interpreted as um as sexual, as sexual yeah. or abusive in some mm-hmm. way yeah. where the intimacy between the father and the daughter to me is is really, I don't know, sweet. <laughs> it's it's messed up because right, they're yeah. not. He's not going about things the right way, but um, the intention certainly isn't to 
Yeah, and that's user. that was that was I guess why it it struck me because that was the thing that did tip the story from being him in, as you've already put it, you know, trying to do his best and and doting on his daughter with a very difficult partner of his mm-hmm. own uh, to to something else. Your editor may have had a point there. I don't know. It certainly was yeah. the way that I I read it. As me a too. Yeah, I, I had to reread it. But. Yeah, but. I was wondering, and we, we kind of started, we're, we're kind of dancing all over the place, but I wanted to talk just briefly about how you got interested in, in writing and doing this in the first place, because this is your, your profession. I mean, you've, you've now written several books, uh, and during the break we were talking a little bit about, you know, having books come out and, and uh, how when your first book comes out it's a big event, and now it's kind of, yeah, books, books out, this is my job. How, how did you even get involved in this in the first place? It goes back to being a twin again when I was, I've always been a big reader, uh, I, I don't know how old we were, maybe eight or ten. My sister just decided, she's like, you're going to be a writer, you're an artist, I'm going to be a scientist. She's a philosopher <laughs> now, and a dance, she's also an artist. But she kind of was like, this is how it's going to play out. And we we read so much. We read a lot of adult fiction. We read a lot of horror as well. And we made up our own stories all the time. And we still do. We still have a paracosm like the Bronte family did, where you just sort of make up stories of the elaborate fantasy world and the, you know thousands of characters and you know you we share it in writing or verbally? we share it yeah over uh like i am we just describe the stories oh, back cool. and forth and you can just pick up whenever and, you and just pick up whenever and it's about. yeah and it's very separate from this work very few stories or ideas from that world go into mm-hmm. my actual writing but i think that uh, obsession with storytelling and with fantasy is inextricable from my experience of being a twin. It's like, that's what we do is we consume stories and we, we make stories. Did you say it was just with your sister or is it other it's just, members of your family? just my twin. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and so, she, you know, I would write stuff and she we shared a room and she would lock me out of the bedroom <laughs> <laughs> until I had sl- slid a single space sheet of paper like new work and then she would approve it or not if it wasn't good enough she would slide it back and I couldn't go to sleep until I'd produce something that satisfied her so she's my reader she's a person that I write for uh, and then the publishing and all you know being a writer as a professional person is just kind of still sort of funny to me yeah so do you still send <laughs> your, your sister all the material? oh everything yeah yeah, yeah. Do you still slide it under the door? (laughs) (laughs) She lives in Chicago. She's, you know, opposite of the city for me. But yeah, electronically, I slide it under the door. And she's, she's, she, because she knows what I want to do, Mm -hmm. she can, she's the best person to tell me when I'm not doing it. Hmm. Because she's so inside. Like, we just really are aesthetically exactly on the same page. Did you guys guys grow up here too? No, we grew up in Fresno, California, in the valley. Yeah. How'd you end up here? She moved here 10, 12 years ago to be with her partner. And after a few years of being apart, I just told my husband, oh, I'm going to go be with my twin. <laughs> and then he, yeah, luckily he found a job here a year later. Okay. And came. But yeah, it was for her. I, I want you to ask that question you were about to ask, <laughs> the communication question. Oh, uh, can you communicate telepathically? <laughs> Almost. Yeah. You know, we know each other so well. It's I used not to date a woman that was an identical either. twin, and it's like th- we would be together, and like her sister would be thinking something, and then she would say it. It was weird. Well, we said this, we'll say the exact same thing at the same time yeah. in the same inflection. Ugh. It creeps yeah. even us out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Genetics. That's yeah, really it's pretty wild. Um, when the, these stories were written basically, what, through 2016? You said it took about a year to write this book? Yeah. 16, 17, mm-hmm. and, and we were talking a little bit after the break. We were just, I know you said you like going back and revisiting some of these stories, but do you have a sense of like, th- this work is kind of done for you. You've moved on mm-hmm. and done other stuff, you know, but because of the vagaries of book publishing, this is just coming out now. It just came out, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Uh, is that a weird sensation to have to go back and promote a book that, you know, for all intents and purposes, you, you were done with three years ago? Yeah. It's not weird. It's just, I mean, it's how it is. But I, I like the distance personally because mm-hmm. it allows me to read the book and interact with the stories almost as a reader, hmm. not hmm. as a writer anymore. Um, so I don't mind. I know for some people it's obnoxious, but. Yeah, I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> I think this the, the only thing that's hard sometimes is to muster up excitement as if 
you know, this just happened and it's What, you're not great. excited to be no. here? At, no, I'm not uh, excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> but when people are like, Stop oh, your book guys. is coming out. Like, aren't you, you – know, that must be a great feeling. And it's like it is, but it's also very abstract. And I right. think before you're published and you you just feel like you're just writing towards this moment, this great moment when a, a you know, major publisher is going to put out your book – you expect to have a certain feeling that never arrives because yeah, one, it's true, like you said, once you're done with the work, you did all the work that you can for that thing. And then it doesn't, a friend of mine said, it doesn't belong to you once it's in the world. It, the book doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs yeah. to other people. And that's, an, that's a fascinating process, how things change and the feedback that you get from, from readers is uh, enjo- very enjoyable, whether it's positive or negative. Um, I'm the all over place guy, but I wanted to tell you um, and talk to you a little bit about pool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we were talking about loneliness earlier. I was a very lonely kid. I was the youngest of eight. My oldest sister is six years older. Or they, my youngest sister is six years older than me, so I'm like way at the bottom of the pile. But there was a, in this story, there's two kids, Jacob and Bobby, and it's Jacob oh. who falls, right? Bobby's a teacher. Oh, he's a teacher. I know. That's confusing for most people. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. So this kid falls at the pool. The teacher falls. Teacher falls. Sorry, the kid teacher saves. falls. Busts his tooth out. Um, oh, so now I'm all confused because I thought it was two kids. And, then, and then Jacob sa- rescue, pulls right. him out of the water. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, so Jacob's the lifeguard, the teen lifeguard, yeah. right? And then uh, the story goes through it, and, and you find out Jacob's a little bit obsessed with Bobby. And then towards the end, and it was funny in a, a strange way, he, he's calling him over and over again and and um you know the kids obviously but it was funny because i remember when i was a kid like in in junior high i would have friends and like you you know how you when you're at that age your friends kind of just like split off and it was very devastating Mm -hmm. to me because i didn't like have a lot of relationships uh at home you know and when i read that it really affected me because i could totally relate to um i'm getting their names jacob jacob um as weird as that sounds because uh um, you know, some people, you know, sometimes you're pretty lonely when you're a kid. Do you, uh, do you feel like you've, you found out what loneliness was from writing these stories? No, <laughs> I think, um, because I'm not in the heads of my characters, I'm just observing them. So mm-hmm. when I'm writing about them, I'm not feeling, I don't feel as if I'm them. I feel for them. There's a sympathy, but it's not the same as being inside someone's head, which I don't know if that distinction makes sense. Um, it absolutely does because one of the arguments that we always propose is a lot of times authors will be tagged something that their characters are like this guy's sexist or this right, woman's right, right, you right. know mm-hmm. an awful person mm-hmm. or like and I'm always like it's fiction you know <laughs> it's like yes. they thought of it they put it on paper it's not, not them yeah. yeah and that it, you know sometimes there's overlaps because they are bad people <laughs> yeah not all right. artists are known to be great people yeah so. but yeah. it's fiction and like there's like I, I read these you know criticisms and things and people are like this person was represented this way and it's like it's fiction it's not real so we don't write to make other people happy you know i mean it's just that's what it is. Yeah. We're, we're actually just running out of time. We do want to give um, Ms. Meyer the last word. We're going to play a selection uh, from her story, Francis, to take us out. But can you quickly just run down what you have done since then? You've got a couple other books coming out soon. Is that correct? I have a novel coming out in 2020 okay. about a vegan necrophile. Okay, a vegan <laughs> necrophile. And climate okay. change. And wow. climate change, okay. Of do you have course. A title? Do you have a title? It's for called it? The Seventh Mansion. Okay. Is it coming from SFSG as well? Mm-hmm. Great. Well, we'll have to have you on when that comes out as well. We'll do a live show. A live show. Yeah, yeah. we should do that. Yeah. I should get you the dial. And speaking of which, when is our next live show? It's two weeks, right? Alex Kotlowitz? Yeah, that's 21st, I believe. Yeah, that's a with uh, an American. Thursday. Yeah, it's an American summer. And before mm-hmm. that is Evan Ratliff. Evan Ratliff will be on our next, next show. Mastermind, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, a lot of I-94 coming up for everybody. Maurice, thanks so much for, for being yeah, here. Thanks for being here, Maurice. Thank this so was me. awesome. So we're going to take us out uh, with a selection from, this is again from Maurice Meyer's book, Rag. It is out now. A collection of short stories from FSG. We all very much enjoyed it. Thanks to her for being here. Thanks to Shanna Van Volt and the International Anthem Recording Company, Jamie Branch and Antelope. We will see you bright and early next week. It's no surprise that they die, not even the first time. They come to me so close to it already. The liquids come in different colors, different dosages. Do they make it happen faster or slower? 
I wonder if the animals have cancer, if the job is about that, research. Last month I asked the voice on the phone, is it working? I'd been doing it for about eight weeks by then, dozens of dogs. The voice was silent, but in an amused way, like I'd said something funny. You're doing great, the voice said finally. You're a natural, Francis. Just keep doing what you're doing. I hung up the phone and turned to the Doberman on the table, its chin against the steel, its brown eyes half-masked. You'd think the room would smell like dog, but it doesn't. The chemicals are too strong. I rubbed its head, put my nose in its fur, breathed. It's shivering. It trusts me so much at this point. It trusts that this, what we're doing, is its life. So it doesn't even try to move or beg me with its eyes to do something different. I put the needle down. It's not like there are cameras here, someone supervising, someone breathing down my neck. There's no gun to my head. I take the animal in my arms. I named him Bunny because of his long ears, brown and ugly. Those lips wrinkled where the front teeth should be. I take him and I open the door and I put him on the ground. You can run, I say. It's warm outside. There's just this nighttime and a little wind and in the dark somewhere, the road. You'll find it, I say. He sits up at my feet, struggling, blinking, nose trying to smell something new, trying to remember walking. Legs shaking, he gets up. We take our time. I'm holding the door open, this heavy green door, metal always cold. If he can hear something, it's beyond me. There aren't any cars that come this way, just us. Deciding, his breathing loud. Eventually, he takes a step forward. That's it, I say, casually, no pressure either way. He doesn't have to go, doesn't have to do anything. It's just an idea I had. Bunny walks crooked with his back up, like something is hurting its paws, like he can't really see where he's going. He moves out beyond the circle of light, and after that I assume he's gone. But later I find him by the side of the road. Didn't make it across. He was alone when it happened, and that's how I know I made a mistake. It was still me who did it, and I didn't do it right. I gripped the steering wheel make a noise that I have never heard ever before. But I'm not going to go mental. I learned my lesson. Freedom after a certain point is a mistake. I have to drag Bunny back inside so that no one will guess what I did. I prop the bag against the wall and lock the door again. The needles rattle in my bag, one full dose and they're gone. No convulsions, no knowledge, just the eyes turning to glass. My brother is asleep on the couch. The blanket half slipped from his hip shirt rucked up so I can see the bare skin of his back, its sprinkle of acne. And I think, now I can be good to him. I know how. My hand on his side. For an animal, being toothless is a way of being dead. For a human, being deaf is a way of being an animal that is toothless. What happened, happened before me. I didn't start it. I'm somewhere toward the end of the line. When the animals come to me, they have already been somewhere worse before. Maybe it starts with being born. I couldn't keep feeding him words with my hands, letting him take the meat that is the stupid conversations we have every day. Drag along. I stroke his hip. He moans in his sleep. Shh. I say. For his Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Marissa Meyer, author of Rag, out now from FSG. This episode originally aired on March 10th, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.